It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And of course, you could also download the iHeartRadio app, punch in our coordinates, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and take us with you anywhere you go. Or you may be listening on one of the other radio stations that now carry Moment of Truth. We welcome you. Or if you're listening on your favorite podcast platform or on our SoundCloud, we welcome all our listeners. And I would like to also welcome my next guest to the show today. And he is here to talk to us about scammers, scammers that take it, that can take advantage of individuals and small businesses during tax season. And uh, he's here to maybe give us some ideas that could help us with uh, ways to protect ourselves, protect yourself and or your business. Tony Anscombe is the chief security evangelist at ESAT, a global leader in IT security software. And he's here, as I say, to talk about the steps that individuals and businesses can take to protect ourselves during the tax season. And I guess throughout the year. It just happens to be tax season and perhaps that uh, scammers are out there a little more prevalent at this time. And we'll ask them about that. Is that something that we are seeing uh, that they are specifically looking for to take advantage of? So it's a pleasure to welcome Tony and welcome him to the show. Tony. Hey, great to be here, David. Now, Tony, the first thing I'd like to ask you about, two things. One, can you tell us something about ESET, the the company that you work for? Sure. So, what most of us understand about cybersecurity is the is the piece of software that we run on our laptops or on our phones is anti-malware software. So ESET is a long-standing company in that technology sector. So we've been around for thirty plus years. So from those very first early viruses, uh, and we're we're actually a European company with offices all over the world today, and obviously in Toronto and in Montreal, and. We produce uh, antivirus software for the uh, you know for the for ease of describing it, but actually it's a lot more complex than that these days. It's uh, cybersecurity anti-malware software, and it, it works in the cloud and on the device. And we work from all the way from actually something my mum might run on her laptop mm. on a Windows laptop or her phone all the way through to huge enterprises with what's known as endpoint detection and response software. So big corporate solutions as well and everything in between. Mm. The other thing is I want to ask you about is chief security, under, I understand that, chief head of chief security, but evangelist, why that name in there? That sounds a little odd to me. <laughs> it, it's, it typically makes people smile. Uh, <laughs> but if you think about cybersecurity, one of the big components of cybersecurity, in fact, one of the most important components, you know, technology is a piece of it, but the big component is actually awareness and education. Mm. Because... Actually, if you look at data breaches and some of the fraud that happens, it's human behavior that actually changes the luck of the cyber criminal and causes an incident or causes somebody to be defrauded of their cash. So actually having people like me out there creating awareness and educating people and talking about these issues helps people understand how they should protect themselves and how they should be a little more vigilant. Right. Okay. Now, you just used an interesting term there as well when you said uh, it's the act of human behavior. What do you mean by that? Can you expand on that a little more? Well, if we look at, uh, for for example, let's take uh, ransomware attacks on organizations. They often typically start through 
a phishing email or a, a malware-laden email, less so the malware-laden email, I think, these days, but phishing emails that are trying to grab people's credentials or gain access or gain people's information so that actually a cyber criminal can then gain access to a corporate network. So we, we are unfortunately targeted to give up our data, and whether that data is our personal data or, or access to a corporate network, it's just an unfortunate happening. Social engineering is probably the best term that's used in the industry for it. I would like to ask you, because you mentioned this off the top as well, it's it's a, a cloud-based system. You download this. Of course, we used to get them on CDs or we used to purchase them. You can still purchase, but you purchase the license and it's good for a year or two. Uh, what is the advantage of, of going to the cloud? Well, firstly, anti-malware software has always been a subscription. Mm. So whether you went off to a physical shop 25 years ago and purchased an actual physical box... Mm. Um, and go back a year later. Therefore, you're subscribing each year. Mm. So it, there's no real change. It's just once it becomes online, I think it becomes a little bit more understood that it's subscription. Right. But the difference between off, you know, offline protection uh, as it was back then and now online protection as in cloud and continually connected. So there's several, there's several benefits to that. So we have um, a security research team who are continually looking for threats. Mm. And when they see a threat come in, you know, we can add the dynamics of that threat to our detection mechanisms. Mm. And of course, because everybody's connected, that means that detection gets pushed out very quickly. Yes. And it's a, it's a, a community approach. So if your machine sees something that is suspicious and reports it that we should look at it further, mm. then you know, we look at it further and then that ends up on everybody's machine. So there's mm. a community element of protection as well. Right. But also what happens when something lands on your machine that actually your machine doesn't have the resources or the, the ability to actually look at it in depth? Right. Well, it can send it to a cloud system and the cloud system can use servers and resources that actually you just can't do right. uh, locally. And you know, we can... I'd say trash the systems in the cloud when looking at it. And what I mean by that is you fire up a virtualized environment, inspect whatever it was that's suspicious, you pass the detection, the, the, um, you, know, you pass the detection result, and it might not be a detection. You pass the result back to the client, and then you spin down that virtualized environment and kill it. So if it was malicious, it doesn't go anywhere else. You know, something else that comes to mind as you were talking there, I was thinking about a number of years ago, I remember hearing about uh, counterfeiters, uh, people that, uh, that that counterfeit bills, for instance, and how sophisticated they were getting. And of course, that means that the, the systems that produce the legitimate dollars that we use have to get more sophisticated to stay on top and always be one step ahead of those people that are trying to counterfeit the money that they want to use. And it's a back and forth system. Is this a similar kind of thing? So actually, I think um, some st- let's give me let me give you some statistics because I think this puts it in true context. Back in 2018, there was a, a gentleman called Dr. Michael McGuire that gave a presentation at RSA, one of the cybersecurity industry's biggest events of the year, and he had done extensive research on the 
the cost of cyber uh, cyber crime to uh, business and society. And he'd Mm. come up with this massive number back then of $2 trillion, which sounds like a huge number. It sounds like a huge number, and it is a huge number even today. Mm. But what was interesting is in 2020, uh, the World Economic Forum had carried out similar research, and they, they posted at $6 trillion. Wow. So between 2018 and 2020, six tri- you know, there was a, a 3x increase in the value of cybercrime to the cyber criminals or the cost of business. So when we think of cyber criminals, I think we all have this view that this, this some person in the back of a garage somewhere in the cold, you know, with lots of screens in front of them in the dark and they've got a hoodie on and because that's how Hollywood has kind of portrayed it. Right. And I think to a certain degree, we visualize it that way. A $6 trillion business doesn't behave or act that way. Right. It is a business. Sure. So these cyber criminals, this is how they make their, their living. Right. You know, there are teams of them. They run campaigns. Yeah. So we need to think of, you need to think of it as a business mm-hmm. and actually cybersecurity companies are you know fighting against the resources that these businesses have mm. You know, that brings to mind, of course, also, we've heard about some of these things in the past. And I think it was a number of years ago where we saw um, a a number of, I think, Canadians were being targeted. And it ended up that it was coming from India, um, I believe. Is this global or is this more homegrown kind of stuff or, or does it matter anymore? I don't think that really where it comes from. I'm not sure is is that relevant. Mm. Uh, and unfortunately, what the internet has done is it's it's flattened the world because mm. I you can be anywhere right. as long as you've got an internet connection. You can pretty much be anywhere in the world and actually appear to be anywhere else. Mm-hmm. So you can connect through a, a, another node and, and look like you're somewhere else. Yeah. As, as we all do right. on occasion with VPNs to keep ourselves secure. Um, so where it comes from, I'm not so sure. Uh, but if, if, well, if somebody was setting up a business of this nature, it's likely that they're going to try and base that business in a country where uh, the, jur- you know, the jurisdiction doesn't allow for extradition, mm. extradition mm. or the laws are slightly weaker. Right. Or they're going to try and make it, hide it under somebody else's banner, if that makes mm. sense. Because right. one thing that you see frequently is, uh, politicians using cybercrime to kind of point the finger of blame at different different areas and ge- different geographies in the world. Right. So let's talk a little bit about some of the things that people might see during this tax season. Uh, unsecure file sharing is, is one thing that comes to mind. Yes. Yeah, so this year, I think, is particularly unique, actually. So uh, I don't know about you filing your taxes, David, but I, I, you know, I have an accountant to file my taxes yep. just to take the burden away from me. Yep. And I think most tax accountants this year have moved to uh, a secure, a secured or unsecured, yeah, a file sharing system. So I, I no longer have to drop my paperwork off to their office. Right. You know, I can scan the paperwork and upload it. Yep. Now, yeah, cyber criminals will, of course, jump on any change or any thing that happens, and suddenly, if they uh, if they can send you an email and saying, "Oh, you need to upload your tax uh, tax documentation here," then suddenly, you know, you've been scammed another way. But also, if your accountant isn't fully savvy with 
cybersecurity, have they secured the file share, the legitimate file sharing mm. that you may be using with them right. in the right way? So have they got two-factor authentication? Is the file st- storage encrypted? Mm. You know, where is it being stored? In what country? Mm. You know, um, and all those sorts of things need to be taken into account. So you, before you upload any personal data, especially tax documentation, because it, it contains massive amounts of personal information mm. that cyber criminals can use against you, mm. you know, make sure that the system you're using is secure and don't use the same password you're using for everything else. Now, you also pointed out something there because this doesn't just, we're not just talking about your own personal computer or your own personal information. We're talking about how these people can target uh, businesses as well as people that, that file your, your, your taxes themselves. Those businesses as well are being targeted. Yes, of course, because they're holding uh, a rich amount of data on lots of different clients. So Mm -hmm. they are, of course, subject to cyber criminal attacks in the same way. And now other things that uh, something that people should be aware of, uh, that is uh, a, a, a fake tax return form. Yes. So one of the things that cyber criminals will do is trying to glean more and more information about you. So if, if they can gather a profile on somebody, then potentially they can inflict identity theft. Mm. And identity theft is a very complex and difficult thing to recover from if you're an individual that unfortunately falls victim to this. Mm. So a fake tax form lands in your inbox or, or an email lands in your inbox saying, you know, we think you're due a refund. You need to fill out this form. And actually the form is being hosted on a, a bogus website right. and it's just data collection for a cyber criminal mm. to, to gather that information. Now, what typically happens with some something like that, that, that group of cyber criminals might do the collection, then they go off to the dark web and sell or auction off that data they've collected, obviously wow. not on an individual basis, but you know, by bucket loads of, of victims, unfortunately. And that's how that's one of the one of the issues here. Right. Another example is uh, perhaps you mentioned an email, but uh, receiving calls. I know that there was uh, a number of these that went around. I believe uh, I think I, I may have gotten one of these. I know I've had, had a bunch of a, a, a few calls about uh, you have to respond to this or, or criminal charges will be brought forward. Those kind of things. People receive those kind of calls. But this in particular is, is a call from the Canadian Revenue a- Agency that could be fake. Yes, and it's it's important to know that actually the yeah if if you're about to be arrested for tax fraud, they're not going to call you and tell you you need to file this in right. some urgent manner. Mm. Um, that's not how a tax authority is is going to communicate with you, especially if they think you're guilty of tax fraud. Right. Um, so any any call like that is probably fraudulent. If you suspect that call may be may be legitimate, the thing to do is actually to put the phone down and ring the tax authority back on the phone number on the tax on the CRA's website mm. and actually call them back and ask to speak to somebody. And, and the likelihood is they're going to turn around and say, that sounds like it was a scam mm-hmm. because it, it probably was a scam. Yeah. But unfortunately there's, you know, there are, there are people in society that actually once you put somebody on the phone with them and that person sounds nice and is understanding and has that conversation with them. That's excellent social engineering from the cyber criminals uh, part because 
they're playing on the vulnerability and the emotion of the person on the other end of the line. Right. Now, you did mention just a moment ago that there was uh, some law enforcement action mm. Or, mm. with particular call centers that right. were running this type of uh, attack. Yeah. And you are correct. I think it was between uh, the FBI, the IRS, uh, so the US side, actually took big task with some some scams that were being run from India. And as I recall, uh, if my memory serves me correctly, they arrested something like 300 people mm. uh, that were par uh, part of that scam. So law enforcement does try and clamp down on this. And bear in mind, you know, you're in Canada with the CRA. This was the IRS. It's the same call centers mm -hmm. that, that ring Canadians and Americans. Mm. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And it is a pleasure to have with us here on the show today, Tani Anscombe. He is the Chief Security Evangelist at uh, ESET, a global leader in IT security. And we're talking to him about that around this time of year because of the potential for uh, scammers to take advantage of us during tax time. And uh, Tony's here to help with uh, some of the things that you might be aware of and how to protect protect yourself. Uh, one of those things, again, is uh, perhaps bogus COVID payment offers. How, how does that work, uh, Tony? Well, of course, governments have stepped in and offer businesses and, in some cases, individuals pay, uh, payments. Mm. So, you know, again, there's an element of data collection in here or there's somebody claiming that payment on uh, by fraud. Mm. So, uh, again, cyber criminals, if, if you look at if we look at actually COVID as, a, as an example, you know, when the outbreaks happened in February, March last year, when the world was kind of somewhat stunned by this pandemic that was about to hit mm -hmm. or was hitting, um, you know, cyber criminals quickly jumped on that. They, they sent out campaigns for, uh, for more, so places you could get more information because, of course, there was a lack of information. There was a mm -hmm. lack of anybody knowing, and we all wanted to know more. So cyber criminals use that as a topic. Then they move to offering you PPE and the things you couldn't buy in shops, you know, toilet right. rolls and such like, yeah. uh, which still amazes me. Um, and more latterly, you've seen COVID payments, so bogus COVID payment offers, and you're seeing vaccine scams mm -hmm. as well. So mm -hmm. the ability to, they're offering you, we can get you on the appointment list for a vaccine scam, or we can sell you an, a, a, vaccine, a, a vaccine that we can deliver to your home if you fill out this details and give us some money mm. so unfortunately covid is a is kind of like rich pickings for a cyber criminal because it's a very prevalent topic something that we're all willing to click on and engage with right personal information is also something else that you brought up that is very big in that area and you just talked about how that information can be gathered and then sold on the dark web is that an equal balance of things that that we find cyber criminals trying to go after, or is is it more on the personal information side that people want to get that so they can use that, or or trying to defraud of, of money? It, it really depend. It really depends on that particular cyber criminal mm. cam criminals campaign. Mm. I mean, data collection is is a huge issue. Right. So, and not just for identity theft, but also credential theft. Right. So, if I can steal, for example, the credentials you use to log on to your your business network, then potentially I can then come and attack the business. Right. So, it affects individuals and businesses alike. Right. Right. And one of the prevalent things, actually, in business is business. What's called business email compromise, and this is where cyber criminals 
sit and watch how a business communicates to each other. They do their research on who's who in a business, and then they will launch an attack that tries to defraud the company and money. And what they'll do is, for example, email the finance team saying, you know, I'm the CEO, and it will look and feel like the CEO because they'll imitate the email (laughs) and ask for a payment to be made to a company urgently. Mm. And unfortunately, these things become very sophisticated and a lot of businesses fall foul of this. Now, let me give you a a very extreme example of that that took place uh, in 2019. Cyber criminals used artificial intelligence to actually mimic a CEO's voice. And they placed a call to the finance department and asked for a transfer to be made. Now, as at that moment in time, the CEO was on a flight. So this is a cyber criminal that's clearly been in the business, in their network, Mm. watching Mm. schedules and watching email and type of conversation. And the CFO of that business actually turned and said, it sounded like the CEO, even the melody of their voice. Right. So, uh, and that shows how artificial intelligence and technology is, is at, unfortunately, at the hands of cyber criminals. Yeah. As I recall, it was about a quarter of a million euros. Mm. So, it was a European company that got hit. Right. It, this all sounds very cloak and dagger as well as a very, very familiar. And when I mean familiar, I, I mean things like James Bond films, <laughs> you know, those kind of things, right? Yes, yeah, and, you know, Hollywood do, that's right. what, and yeah. maybe that's what I was trying to say at the start, Hollywood give us this picture of cyber criminals and what they're like. I'm not sure that's actually what they're like. But yes, um, it does sound that way. And when there's $6 trillion, according to the World Economic uh, Forum, when there's $6 trillion on the table for cyber criminals, that's a lot of resource they've got at their hands, both in technology and in in individuals to go and uh, create this crime, unfortunately. I'd say. I'd say so. Yeah. Wow. That's that is a huge amount of uh, money up there for uh, for the taking. I guess. Wow. When you think about it, that's unbelievable. And uh, you know, the, I guess the bottom line is that uh, the everyday person is paying for it. Yes, and that's an interesting one because even when uh, companies get hit, we hear about major incidents at companies and data breaches and such like. So we hear about ransomware attacks against company X or company Y. And what we what we often don't hear, which I think is really important to understand, is when a company has a data breach, the victim actually is their customer, is the, the victim who had their data stolen. Mm-hmm. Yes, the the company is going to suffer reputational damage, et cetera, but it's the likes of you and I, their customer, who are going to end up having identity theft or scams targeted at us from the data that was stolen. Mm -hmm. So it's important to understand this is a very personal crime. Yeah. And even when you sit there and go, wow, somebody had 300 million records stolen or whatever it might be, uh, we sit back and to a certain degree, I think as individuals, we're slightly complacent. Actually, that data will be used against you at some stage. Um, in fact, I can give you a great example of that. Uh, British Airways had a data breach a couple of years back. I had booked a ticket on uh, for, a fl- for my son actually to travel. And at the time when they, the data breach was prevalent, it, it, and it was a it was a redirect off the checkout page. So somebody was grabbing the information while you were transacting. Um, And they took $7,500 out of a bank account. Mm. 
So it shows that even somebody in the cybersecurity industry can be become the victim, and mm. it's difficult to to think about that. But the headlines in the paper aren't about my seven and a half thousand dollars. The headline in the paper is about a breach at British Airways, and yeah. we don't hear about the victim. And I right. think that's something actually the media could do a much better job at. Right. Right. Well said. And so there are ways that uh, we can try to protect ourselves more. Uh, that is partly by, for instance, going to your company, uh, going to the uh, the uh, programs that are available to download that we can put on our computer that can help us in, in some ways to protect our computers, protect our information, and give us a heads up on, on some of these things that could also, again, help others because, as you pointed off the top, uh, these, uh, these programs can then, because they're on the cloud, uh, can report back and use the computer service that you have to to upgrade and and, and improve things. Yes. So obviously, as he said, we have software that lives on the endpoint and can protect you in that way and in the cloud. You know, I'd recommend if you if you haven't looked at our products, come and come and look at them. But if if there's you know, and make sure that whatever anti malware software you run on your device, that it's actually in date, i.e. Don't, don't let it expire and make sure it is being updated and using cloud services in that way mm-hmm. to, to protect you. The other big tip that I I can't I can't get over enough when uh, giving somebody advice is make sure you turn on two-factor authentication. Right. Any service you have online, make sure it's switched on if it if it's available. So mm-hmm. that's the whether you receive the SMS, the phone, you know, yep. the the six-digit number or whatever it is that yep. you need to then log in with. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's it gives a slightly longer process to log into a service mm-hmm. because you've then got to get the SMS, type in the yep. number, etc. But that's one huge protection. Uh, Tony, anything else come to mind just before we finish up? Well, be vigilant. So if so, yeah, I pretty much have the rule with my inbox. Everything that lands in my inbox is fake. Um, so <laughs> I never really click on anything in my yeah. inbox. I always go off and then log on directly to my bank account or my credit card account or whatever it might be, mm. and I look for the messages directly. Yeah. So just don't don't click on links. Right, right. Well said, Tony. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us and talk about this on our show today. Oh, my pleasure, David. Right, well, you take care and have a safe uh, rest of 2021. And you, stay safe. That is Tony Ascom. He is the Chief Security Evangelist at ESET, and that is a global leader in IT security software. And we've been talking to him about how you can protect yourself a little bit more these days in terms of the scammers that are out there, especially during tax season, and the ways that uh, you should be, as he said, be vigilant about making sure you protect yourself and using that uh, that double, uh, double security system that we now get uh, at Every time we log, try to log into something, uh, be sure to do that. It's been a pleasure to have him on the show, and it's always a pleasure to have you listen to our show each and every day. I'm your host, David Moses, and we're going to be right back with more right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. You could also listen on the iHeartRadio app, which if you download the app and punch in our coordinates, you can 
take us with you anywhere you go. You might also be listening on your favorite podcast platform, on our SoundCloud, or one of the other radio stations that now carry Moment of Truth, and we welcome you all to the show. It's a pleasure to have you with us. It's also a pleasure to welcome to the show Dr. Lawrence Lowe. He's the Medical Officer of Health for Peel Public Health, as well as Brian Laundrie, co-lead with the Mass Vaccination Plan for the region of Peel. It's a pleasure to have them here to talk about what else we're going to talk about COVID and uh, what's happening in the uh, the Peel region. And so, gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you, David, for having us. It's a pleasure. Thank you both for joining us. Now, COVID brings up so many questions that are ongoing. We're into our third wave. There's hot spots. There's still the, I guess, questions around uh, vaccine hesitancy. There's questions around the vaccines themselves. Dr. Lowe, what, what comes to mind for you? What do you feel that is most important at this point in time that people in your region of Peel and elsewhere need to know about? Well, I think the most important thing uh, to remember is that the reason COVID-19 has become such an issue in our community uh, is because it is a novel disease. It is a uh, virus that none of us have ever been uh, infected by, uh, the vast majority rather. And uh, what happens is uh, while some people might uh, you know, get through things um, with fairly mild symptoms if they were infected with the virus, uh, there is uh, always a risk, especially if you're older uh, or if you have specific uh, health conditions, uh, that you might actually have a much more severe outcome. That results, uh, especially if you have uh, rapid spread throughout a community uh, in uh, increasing hospitalizations, uh, sometimes really severe hospitalizations, and then also, of course, uh, in in very unfortunate uh, circumstances, uh, mortality, uh, people Mm. passing away. Mm. Uh, And uh, we've seen, especially with the variants in our community, how quickly this spreads and how severe the disease can be and also starting to really affect many of the younger age groups uh, mm-hmm. in, our, in our community. And so uh, vaccine is one of the ways to prime uh, and, uh, you know, boost your immune system to ensure uh, that if uh, you are infected with the novel coronavirus, uh, that uh, you don't have uh, severe outcomes, hospitalizations or death as an outcome. And uh, as we're talking, thinking about and talking about vaccine, you know, as our vaccine campaign ramps up, we are, you know, certainly we just recently uh, celebrated a milestone of over 500,000 doses administered in Peel, uh, we know that the more of us that get a vaccine more quickly, the more likely we'll be able to get back to a life without restrictions, knowing that the disease, while it might spread, will not be causing severe illness, hospitalizations, and deaths in our community. Okay, thank you. Brian, just wondering from your perspective in terms of public health emergencies, how are hospitalizations? Are you seeing, uh, is, is it overwhelming the system at this point in time with, with people coming in? Uh, yes, so uh, we uh, we don't directly uh, deal with the, the hospital numbers ourselves, but they, they are reported and we meet with our uh, senior leadership uh, in the, the CEOs, etc. Uh, through uh, both our hospitals in Peel, the Peeling Health Partners and William Ulster Health uh, System, they are uh, transporting patients out of their hospital that are COVID positive. Uh, they have uh, high rates of uh, uh, p- patients in their intensive care units, uh, and uh, the, they're among the highest hospitals uh, impacted by uh, people with uh, disease that's serious enough to be in the hospital, and uh, and uh, they're 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 among the highest in the province. 
Um, one of the th- things I s- see on the uh, the PeelRegion.ca website uh, about COVID-19 is around the rolling out of the, the hot spots uh, and uh, mobile pop-up clinics. Uh, do, do one of you guys want to talk about that? Sure, I could start it. Uh, Brian can fill in where I might leave off. Uh, the region of Peel uh, is uniquely situated in the COVID pandemic among all communities in Canada. Uh, we have had uh, one of the most severe, if not the most severe, uh, outbreak of community ni- of COVID-19 throughout our community. And what has resulted is that 85% of our population lives in a defined hotspot uh, at this point in time. And so our mass vaccination clinic system, which is now putting through almost 130,000 residents a week, um, is uh, actually a, uh, a system that is already uh, serving a major hotspot to some degree. Uh, you know, pop-ups and mobile clinics are certainly additional supplementary measures that we have taken since the beginning of our campaign to get to our hardest to reach populations. And I think there is a, a recognition, especially as the disease uh, with the variants uh, starts to um, trouble workplaces, uh, people who can't work from home and also younger age groups, uh, that there is a role for Uh, increasing and expanding our mobile offerings uh, to uh, really try to get to our hardest to reach populations. Uh, But ultimately, uh, you know, the way forward will continue to be all of the different channels with a real reliance on our mass immunization clinic system, which remains our backbone in trying to make sure that we get through as many residents as possible. And Brian, I don't know if you wanted to add on to that. I think that was a great answer, Dr. Lowe. Uh, certainly, we've always had uh, multiple streams, of, as you've referenced, and uh, it's 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 as we move through our populations, we we tend to see uh, a fairly rapid uptake uh, when new groups become eligible. Uh, but we understand that there, 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 there's those that have questions and uh, barriers to accessing our clinics. So we've always had in our plan and have always mobilized to support those populations and we'll continue to do so uh, for, for a number of months to come. We, we hear a lot about the idea that we there isn't enough testing that, that is happening within Canada. Dr. Lowe, what is your take on this? What are you, what are you thinking around the idea of, of more testing? I think testing has certainly come a long way since the start of the uh, pandemic in our community. Uh, we know, of course, that uh, there have been, uh, you know, uh, there, there were at the initial outset of the pandemic uh, limitations, just given capacity that had been developed and built up for a, a really new disease that no one has seen. Um, and while uh, more testing is always welcome, I think we do, we have reached a sort of critical mass of capacity in Peel uh, where we are starting to see turnaround times uh, come back quicker. And I think it's really important for me to underline the point here. Uh, that it is the provincial laboratory system uh, that uh, oversees uh, testing. Uh, We in public health actually are end users of the testing result, but we don't oversee any aspect uh, of the the testing system whatsoever. Uh, And we've been really grateful for our partnership with, uh, you know, Ontario Health and our provincial partners uh, in, in really trying to make sure that testing is increasingly available, both just for the community at large, uh, as well as through working with uh, various other cultural and community groups to make sure that it is accessible to uh, our diverse community as well. 
Okay, thank you. Uh, Brian, would you mind explaining a little bit more about public health emergencies? What what does that umbrella cover? So, so you've got me a little there, David. It's, it's a broad umbrella. The title might not be as uh, appropriate as it uh, should be for this purpose, which is really I'm the, the co-lead for the mass vaccination plan. Hmm. Uh, and Lawrence could give you a, a, an answer more around what the types of public health emergencies uh, that, uh, that the region has to deal with uh, if you're interested in the emergency side of that. Yeah, I might add in, sure. um, and so certainly, we, you know, public health has what public health units, uh, local public health departments throughout the country, uh, subscribe to six core um, functions, essentially six uh, areas of practice. That includes things like surveillance and population health assessment, and that's basically data and trying to understand our community and the trends, the various health issues and challenges that are faced uh, by our community and what needs to be worked on. Um, then you've got health protection, health promotion, and disease prevention. This really speaks to our work through uh, programs and also uh, informing policy uh, to try to create healthier community contexts and try to ensure uh, that various measures are taken to protect people, for example, around you know, smoking bans or around air quality or around uh, you know, motor vehicle safety, uh, including uh, and also including infectious disease control, such as case management contact tracing, not only for COVID, but for a wide variety of infectious diseases uh, that continue to uh, imperil our community. Uh, but then you also have um, emergency preparedness and response. And so within emergency preparedness and response, there is a recognition that from time to time, there are emergencies that will occur in our community that threaten the health and well-being of our community. This could be things like a toxic spill. Uh, it could be something like a major outbreak. It could be a food recall. Um, and in this case, for the last 14 months in the region appeal with the global pandemic raging, uh, we have essentially been in emergency response acting on uh, addressing the novel coronavirus in our community, which really has become the foremost threat uh, to our foremost and immediate threat uh, to our community's health and well-being and also to uh, our health care and hospital system. Mm, okay, thank you. Um, one of the other things that is now starting to become uh, something that is talked about is is uh, vaccines and, and children uh, in the area of Peel. What how is how is that being addressed for Peel? So you know, I'll start and then Brian can fill in uh, just in terms of some of the operational details around what it might look like in the future. Um, but I think uh, at this time, there are no Health of Canada approved products uh, for children. And that's not to say that there aren't any safe products for children. Uh, it's just that we don't have research or trial data in at this point in time. We know that at least two of the manufacturers, uh, Pfizer and Moderna, I believe AstraZeneca as well, uh, they are all actively uh, trialing their product out on children um, and really trying to make sure that the vaccine is also safe and effective. And I understand that initial results are quite promising. Um, but right now at this point in time, without an approved vaccine product, our goal is really to try to make sure that people are adhering to the public health measures to reduce their risk of infection. And then also when their turn and eligibility comes to actually take the shot and hopefully be able to uh, access that protection, not only for themselves, but for their family and the people they live with, which may include uh, children. So in the event that we do get an approved product, though, Brian, I imagine there's a number of different channels that we'd be considering, uh, you know, and I, I wonder if you can expand on that. Uh, yes, thank you, Dr. Lowe. Uh, so on the operation side, our, our approach uh, for all our eligible populations is to uh, establish population planning tables to, to support those groups 
in uh, identifying issues, concerns, and facilitate uh, overcoming barriers to accessing the vaccine and to make it as uh, a fast and efficient and safe process as possible. So we, we tend to work with uh, community agency groups or leaders, that, and in this case, it would be uh, for children, maybe working with the school system uh, to identify uh, not only the issues, but how we could operationalize and vaccinate uh, that, that school-age population as quickly as possible. Uh, but we like to do these things in, in partnership. Uh, Dr. Lowe has always talked about uh, our vaccination program being a system-wide response, needing all of our health and social services to, to work with uh, public health and with the region appeals. So that's, that's our approach. And at that time, we will have that uh, planning table established. Mm, great. Thank you. Of course, the other thing, as, as you're talking there, that I hear, and that is the more vulnerable communities of people within the community that are being looked at and are getting the vaccinations first. One of those groups of people uh, that we hear about is, of course, Indigenous people. Uh, we hear about the vaccinations that are being uh, sent to Indigenous communities. But, of course, there are many Indigenous people that live within the urban areas, uh, Peel being one of them. Um, how is Peel dealing with, with that? What are you, what are you hearing? about uh, Indigenous people within the city and urban area uh, coming forward to, to get vaccinated? So we certainly, uh, you know, recognize uh, that we have, an, uh, you know, a very significant urban Indigenous population. Uh, and I'll, I'll, of course, give respect to uh, the Indigenous peoples who live in our community, who are the first uh, inhabitants upon these lands. Uh, you know, we do also recognize uh, that uh, from the Indigenous Primary Healthcare Council, uh, that there is data and evidence that shows uh, that Indigenous peoples uh, in Canada uh, are identified as priority populations because there is evidence of uh, illness, severity, and mortality rates uh, if they do contract COVID-19, especially because there are uh, often higher rates of uh, chronic medical conditions or risks of chronic medical conditions uh, that place them at that risk uh, if they were to be uh, infected with COVID-19. Mm. Um, so uh, to reduce the risk of uh, COVID-19 infection, uh, amongst our urban Indigenous community, it is really vital that we try to address uh, transmission of COVID uh, by, uh, by vaccinating as many people as we can, and also really protecting uh, individuals themselves with the vaccine to reduce the, uh, the severity uh, of a disease should they become infected. Um, and I know, uh, Brian, that your team has really uh, done a lot of work in together with, in partnership with the agencies that serve our community. Um, and so, uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about our outreach and our, our actual work in, uh, in getting Indigenous individuals to get vaccinated in our clinics. Uh, sure, absolutely. Uh, yeah, so I did uh, speak uh, about our population planning tables for in the example of children, and we've also had one for Indigenous populations, understanding uh, that uh, it's a specialized population that, uh, like many of our populations, would have uh, unique interests and concerns that would have uh, different uh, requirements, maybe for eligibility or access. And we wanted to work with those communities, uh, as we do with others, to ensure we're, we're making uh, the system as accessible as possible. So we've worked with a number of uh, agencies, including the station, I believe, with uh, community member marketing at, at this station, uh, with the Peel Indigenous Network, uh, Métis Nation of Ontario, Credit River Métis Council, just a few uh, Indigenous Primary Healthcare Council 
to uh, help establish what the uh, criteria would be for eligibility, for how the groups would access the uh, vaccine, uh, come to our clinics, how we can make that process uh, working in partnership as uh, seamless and as effective as possible. Uh, we've, we've seen probably less uh, uptake than uh, we would like to. I think probably what we know from the data is we're around the 10% mark for what uh, we would guess to be the field indigenous population. But we also recognize that uh, the, the data doesn't really go down into detail levels and uh, nor are indigenous necessarily captured uh, in, uh, as, as a uh, category in, uh, in the COVAX system. Uh, and many would have just uh, been a- able to be immunized uh, on our age-based criteria. So I think the, 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 the data is probably underrepresenting the uptake in the community. Uh, but we will continue to work with those uh, organizations uh, across the planning table to identify issues that arise and uh, address them as best we can to make sure that not only are the, is, are the Indigenous peoples uh, uh, eligible and attending, uh, but also they're, uh, those that live with them. Okay, thank you. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guests here on the show for today, Dr. Lawrence Lowe, Medical Officer of Health for Peel Public Health, as well as Brian Laundry, the co-lead with the Mass Vaccination Plan for the region of Peel. I'm just wondering about communication efforts that might be happening and, and how communications are are affecting the rollout of either the vaccine, the vaccine hesitancy, um, concerns around the vaccine, concerns about the COVID COVID nineteen itself. Still, perhaps Dr. Lowe, you could you could address this idea of um, is that are you still seeing a concern around vaccine hesitancy, for instance? You know, I, I think it really uh, it varies, and I think it's difficult to put a specific number on uh, issues around vaccine confidence and mm-hmm. the ability for people uh, to get the you know to, to get answers to their questions. Uh, I think we have certainly seen a tremendous uptake uh, in our community uh, through our mass vaccination clinics. Like I mentioned, almost five hundred thousand doses delivered um, since the start of our campaign. Uh, but I think there's a recognition that uh, vaccine confidence challenges do still exist uh, in the community overall and also do tend to find uh, you know, increased uh, increase proportions uh, in certain uh, cultural communities uh, and, and also uh, even in um, indigenous communities as well. Uh, recognize fully it's a new disease, it's a new vaccine, and people have you know, legitimate questions that they deserve to have answered and for which we do have answers that can help to reassure uh, that they are that these vaccines are safe and effective and that they're a way out of this. Um, but I think, uh, you know, we have uh, certainly recognized, of course, that while there is uh, tremendous interest, there is still a, a lot of work that we can be doing around corporate, uh, around, uh, not corporate, sorry, around confidence uh, in the vaccines. Um, and we have been working very closely uh, with our communications uh, to really try to do uh, both uh, overall mainstream outreach, uh, communications, etc., cetera, um, but also targeting uh, various communities through our partners and through our uh, networks to ensure that we can also reach them in a manner that is congruent to how they're used to receiving it. Mm. Okay, thank you. Uh, Brian, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, yeah, so we, I think that's been covered. We do we do, do a lot of uh, digital and print media and uh, we have uh, worked with the, an advertiser through the Aboriginal People's Television Network mm. and uh, plan to, uh, or plan to in May. 
and uh, expect uh, so uh, want to expand their social media campaigns as uh, Dr. Lola's reference. So. Right. Lots of different channels we're following. Right. And, of course, we, we should mention that if people go to the uh, Peel Region website, peelregion.ca, what do we know now about the, the variants and about the efficacy around the um, the vaccines themselves towards the new variants, which are now, of course, a big issue we hear about every day um, in the news and about trying to, to curb this third wave? Uh, Dr. Lawrence? Yeah, absolutely, David. I, I think there's there, there's sort of two things I touch on. First of all, the variants, and then the question around vaccine effectiveness. Sure. So we do know that the variants, uh, especially the ones that we have in in Canada now, the B one one seven, which was originally detected in the UK, and then at least in Ontario, we have smaller numbers of the B one three five one and the P one, which are the variants that were originally detected in South Africa and Brazil, respectively. Those, uh, you know, all tend to seem to respond to the vaccine largely. There is some question around potential uh, partial escape uh, with the P1 variant. But the most important thing to note is that there is still some effectiveness uh, that is provided for by the vaccine, even if those variants are, at least, and, and actually it's even more vital rather, uh, because these variants are much more transmissible and they do cause um, more severe disease, which has actually been what's driving our third wave. On the overall, though, I think there are additional variants that are being identified around the world every day that may escape uh, the uh, vaccine altogether. But that's not to say that the vaccines are going to become ineffective altogether. Um, what we have to remember is that when we talk about effectiveness, there is effectiveness, obviously, against getting infected altogether and or uh, mild disease. Uh, but there's also effectiveness against severity, hospitalization, uh, mortality. And by all accounts, a lot of the severity, mortality and uh, hospitalization, as I said earlier in the show, is really related to the fact that this is a brand new disease. Mm -hmm. So it still remains to be seen that, uh, you know, even if the variants manage to escape uh, these current vaccines, will the fact that you've been inoculated with it previously actually still protect you some, you know, modicum of, uh, of protection against some of the more severe outcomes? And that will only take time and continued research to really figure that one out. Are the manufacturers who create the vaccines that we take, and I've never questioned where the vaccines come from that we get every year, but now we hear about all these manufacturers that are producing the vaccines. Are they the same manufacturers, Dr. Lawrence or Brian, do you know who manufactures these these yearly vaccines that we get? Yeah, I can I can speak to that. Um, in general, uh, no, uh, Pfizer, Moderna, and AstraZeneca tend to be, uh, are not typically manufacturers of influenza uh, vaccine that we use here in, in Canada. Um, and, and I actually, this actually raises a much more interesting point for me. Uh, there's been such a, a focus on uh, some people preferring one vaccine over the other. And I think it's a good opportunity for me to really highlight, um, you know, all the vaccines that have been approved by Health Canada are effective, almost 100% effective against severe illness, um, hospitalization and mortality. Um, and they're all effective against COVID-19. Even if the numbers differ between them, the numbers are basically a comparison of that vaccine, not to the other vaccines, but to placebo. Mm. So basically, it's way better to get these vaccines uh, and way safer than actually getting COVID in that count. And it's a really good point that I, I sort of try to drive home is that most of the time when people show up to get their annual flu shot, which they should continue to do, um, no, nobody really asks what the brand is. And I think it's mm. uh, that's sort of if we want to get through this as quick as possible, the best way for people to actually make the most of this is if you're eligible shot for a shot and you're offered one, take it. Because mm. the sooner we all get vaccinated, the sooner we get out of this altogether. 
compared to the COVID numbers compared to the flu numbers. We every day we hear about the number of cases that that uh, are, are new in the province or new in the country. You know, early on in this in this pandemic, we heard about numbers comparatively from the the yearly flu numbers and the COVID nineteen numbers. Are they still relatively low compared to, say, the uh, or, or average out around the same as the flu? Do we know in terms of that at this point in time? Absolutely. I think the, it's, it's very clear now the proof is in the pudding uh, and the data that we've collected that uh, COVID-19 uh, is uh, far more deadly than uh, influenza, uh, depending on uh, the data that you look at um, and also depending on the um, uh, depending on the country and the situation you've seen, uh, it's been ranging from anywhere between three to uh, five times as uh, more and more uh, deadly uh, than influenza. Mm. And then people will often ask the question, well, uh, what what is it or how how is it that we've managed to uh, sort out uh, influenza uh, so quickly this year versus COVID? Again, that goes to the fact that influenza is not new and most of us have some residual or partial immunity to influenza, mm. whereas COVID, even if you're out and about, anything open remains vulnerable even with even with protective measures that might be in place. Right. So as we go forward and, and, you know, we're talking about the variants and I know that that is something from talking with immunologists and other people through this whole course of situation with COVID. That's a that's a very natural thing. The, the variants were expected to come, um, but it looks like they're going to be here for the long haul. Uh, something else that we may just have to perhaps get used to living with uh, as we go forward. And uh, I'm, I'm guessing that's going to require either boosters or perhaps a new new vaccines that maybe even be start to be looked at at this point in time. Uh, Dr. Lawrence, is, is that fair to say? Absolutely. I mean, obviously, the, the jury is still out and the evidence and data is still being crunched. But with the rapid pace of mutation and also the reality that this disease uh, appears to be far from under control in many places of the world, I mm-hmm. think it can be reasonably expected uh, that uh, it's likely to become endemic in the long run. It'll become part of the cold and flu and COVID season in the future. And we may need to have something like an annual or, or an otherwise regular interval shot uh, to ensure that we are uh, keeping each other safe. And uh, as and in the long run, it'll probably become less, uh, less severe, hopefully. Mm, right. um, you know, that's generally where most uh, respiratory viruses tend to go over time, because the ones that cause severe mortality uh, tend to almost always uh, um, uh, transition out as well because yes. they tend to uh, lead their hosts to mortality. Yes. So yes. that's kind of where we're going. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, Brian, I'm just wondering if there's anything from your perspective that we didn't touch on uh, that you feel is important to mention just before we wrap up. No, I think the, the key messages from uh, our Peel Mass Vaccination Plan is that we're trying to move through and vaccinate as many people as possible, as quickly, safely, and uh, efficiently as possible, and that people should, uh, you know, listeners should take advantage of uh, the mass uh, clinics and of any other uh, modalities, whether it be a mobile or a pop-up clinic, that they have the option to uh, to take advantage of, and uh, together we'll get through this. Great. Thank you very much. And uh, Dr. Lawrence Lowe, as well as Brian Laundry, thank you both for taking the time to join us on the show out of your busy schedules and share this information with us here today. Thanks for having us. You bet. Thank you for having us, David. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.
They are the voices of Dr. Lawrence Lowe, a medical officer of health for the Peel Public Health, as well as Brian Laundry, the co-lead for the mass vaccination plan for Region of Peel. And that is our show for today. Thank you for listening to Moment of Truth, and we will see you again tomorrow. I'm your host, David Moses. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.